All right, well, good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21? And this morning we're going to pick it up in verse 12. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple, overturned the tables of the money changers, and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants? You have perfected praise. Then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, and he lodged there. Here in this passage, Jesus cleanses the temple. Now, apparently he did this twice. Once at the beginning of his ministry, as recorded in John 2, and then once at the end, as recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's Gospels. The temple, as most of you already know, was a place where animals were brought to the priest and then sacrificed to atone for sin. This goes back, of course, to the Old Testament. In fact, I think of Leviticus 17, verse 11, where God said, The life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it, given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for the soul, for it is the blood, the blood of these animals, that makes atonement for the soul. And the purpose of atonement, of course, was because sin had opened up a gulf between God and man. And that gulf could only be closed through blood atonement. Sin required uh, life, and God graciously said, The soul that sins, although they surely should die, I will allow a substitute. And so in the old economy, God allowed an animal to be the one who would then be slaughtered, and their blood would be then applied to that person's account, in a sense. And um, this would allow God and man to come together again for the purpose of fellowship. That was the main idea behind the tabernacle, uh, and then, of course, later on the temple the place where God and man met for fellowship. Now, of course, the temple was also a place of prayer and worship, or at least that's what God intended it to be before it had been corrupted. You say, well, what happened to corrupt it? Well, before we look at that, I want to just give you an idea about the temple. And this first point I want to make today is the temple of God in Jesus' day. And the second point will be the temple of God in our day. But first of all, the temple of God in Jesus' day. Let's look, first of all, at the, at the temple configuration. Uh, in the New Testament, there's two words translated temple. Uh, the word for temple proper is the Greek word naos. And the temple proper was a building that was relatively small compared to the entire temple area. The uh, temple proper consisted of a building that had two rooms in it. The first room, of course, was the Holy of Holies. And this, excuse me, the first room was the holy place. And the second room was the Holy of Holies into which only the high priest could enter, and then only once a year on the great day of atonement, Yom Kippur. The building sat on an elevated platform, which today is still called the Temple Mount. Now, the temple proper, or Naos, was only one building in a, in a whole complex of buildings and walkways and things that was called the Temple Precincts, or, you read in your Bible, it says temple, it's the Greek word hieron. 
And so you have to kind of look, if we're talking about the temple proper, when you read in your New Testament and the Gospels, uh, the building, or was it the temple area, the temple complex, or what some have called the temple precincts? Jesus often taught, and he was the only rabbi that taught his disciples, because the rabbis uh, all had disciples, and they all met in various places around the temple complex, under arches and walkways, and there was little areas where they could congregate with their disciples. And Jesus often taught the people in one of these areas, uh, which was not, of course, the temple building. And the area of the temple precincts closest to the temple proper consisted of a series of successive and ascending courtyards that led up to the temple mount. Now imagine this. Back in those days, you're, you're, you're standing on the ground level and you're looking up at the temple, which is elevated. To get to the, well, of course, normal people couldn't get to the top of the temple. It was forbidden. But there was a series of courts that led up to, uh, to the top platform or the courtyard where the temple proper actually sat. That first courtyard where the temple sat was called the court of the priests. Only Jewish priests could enter into this area. And this is, of course, where they conducted their ministries. Sacrifices were brought. They took these animals up to the top platform, the temple mount. And there they would offer these sacrifices on the brass altar, the altar of sacrifice, after which they would go uh, behind the brass altar to one of ten labors, wash basins, where they would wash themselves before entering into that first compartment of the temple proper, the holy place, where they would burn incense on a golden altar that stood right outside a veil that led into the holy of holies. And he would burn incense there, and that would be symbolic of the prayers that were ascending to God on behalf of this person who had just had their sins atoned for. Now, if you were to walk out of the court of the priest down a few steps, there would be another court. This would be the court of the Israelites, also known as the court of the Jewish men. Only Jewish men were allowed in this courtyard. And this is where they would gather for the temple service. If you walked out from the court of the Israelites, down a few steps, you would come to another court. This would be called the court of the women. Now, in this court, any Jew could congregate, but it was called the court of the women because this was where the women were restricted to remain. They could go no farther than the court of the women. Now, from the court of the women, you descended five steps to a level area that had a wall five feet high that went around the entire temple precinct. On the wall, at various points, were the words that basically warned Gentiles, any Gentile caught past this point uh, would have himself to blame for his ensuing death. Gentiles were not allowed past this point. That was a reminder to them of what Paul said, how that uh, there had been a separation, a wall of separation. When Paul says that in Ephesians, he's referring to this very wall that we're talking about. How that there was a wall of separation that separated Jew and Gentile, which in Christ has been broken down because Christ has made Jew and Gentile one body, one new man in the body of Christ. From that level area where this wall was, you descended another 14 steps to what was called the outer court, or in other words, also known as the court of the Gentiles. Now, this was the area that uh, God had set aside for Gentile seekers to come, that they might know a little bit, they might find out more about the God of Israel and possibly convert to the Jewish faith. This was supposed to be a place where seekers could come, talk to priests. It was a place of reverence and prayer, supposed to be. 
But of course, in Jesus' day, uh, it was not that way. Instead, the Sadducees and, and the priests had turned it into a place of merchandising and thievery. And that's why Jesus called it a den of thieves. You say, well, what happened to cause it to become corrupted? Well, we read in our passage this morning about how Jesus drove out those who sold the animals. What was that all about? Well, it was Passover time in Jerusalem. And at Passover time, especially of all the main feasts, uh, at Passover, more Jews came from all over the known world to Jerusalem to celebrate this one feast. This was their greatest feast of the year, the Feast of Passover. So pilgrims, Jewish pilgrims, came from all over the known world into Jerusalem, which swelled to about two and a half million people at this time. Well, many of these Jews would want to offer a sacrifice at the temple, not only for their sins, but then to have an animal that was offered to be eaten then for the Passover meal. You know, the idea was that some of these Jews, this was the first time they had ever been to the temple, maybe the only time in their life they would ever get to the temple. This was a big deal for them. Some of them, though, were coming so far, it wasn't really feasible to drag a couple of animals with them on a ship and, and all that way and walking and so on. So to assist these Jewish pilgrims, and I'm convinced initially this started out as a service, a ministry, to help these Jewish pilgrims. You know, why force them to drag animals all the way to Jerusalem when we can have them ready to go right there in the court of the Gentiles? So Jewish merchants set up these booths all around this court area, this outer court, and they had animals that they were selling uh, to these pilgrims that then can be used to offer for sin or to be used then for the uh, uh, Passover Seder meal. And again, I think this started out uh, as, a, as a good ministry. I think it was uh, a sincere thing. But unfortunately, over time, as so, so often happens with various ministries, they start out well, but in time they get corrupted. And what happened was you had a couple of high priests at this time named Annas and Caiaphas. And they were very corrupt, evil men. And they got their hands on this whole animal you know, ministry thing, and, and they, it became a corrupt business. They were working, the merchants began to work in cahoots with the priests, and the priests began to rip these travelers, these pilgrims off. They would come and say, I'd like to buy a lamb to offer for my sins. I want to get another one for the Passover meal. I'd like to buy two lambs. And they were ripping the people off, charging these people up to, up to 10 times the going rate you would pay for this animal out in the street. And even if you tried to get around that by bringing your own animal, if you didn't live too far, the priests were instructed, they had to pass inspection before they could be given to the priest to be sacrificed. So the priests were instructed to, to inspect the animal over and over again until they found even the smallest defect or flaw, and then they would reject it. And that would force a person then to buy a kosher animal from the priest, uh, one that had been pre-approved, of course, at the hyperinflated price. And so they were being ripped up, people were being ripped off who just had come to worship God. You say, well, what about this money changer thing? Well, Jewish law said every Jew, 19 years old and above, had to pay a, a half shekel every year as a temple tax. Okay, no big deal, right? The problem was the Sadducees, again, who ran the concessions here, decided that Roman currency was not acceptable. That was defiled money. You have to give to God temple shekels. Now, we happen to have uh, money changers here that will take your, Rome, your dirty Roman currency 
and will convert it into temple shekels that you can then use to pay your tax or just to give an offering to God. Because a lot of people had come and they wanted just to give an offering to God. But again, here they were being ripped off because these, these uh, money changes were charging exorbitant exchange rates to change Roman currency into temple shekels. Again, ripping people off that just had come to worship God. And um, this is what was going on. And you see, you ask yourself, well, how could the temple be a place of worship and prayer with all this merchandising and ripping people off going on? Well, it couldn't, obviously. And that's why Jesus had to clean house. And we read again in verse 12, Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple, overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, It is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Again, the temple couldn't be what God designed it to be as long as it was defiled with all this merchandising and thievery going on. And that's why Jesus took care of this. Now, let me just stop and say this. There are those people who believe that Jesus lost it here. Okay? He lost it. He just snapped. And he acted in the flesh. Well, folks, that is absolutely ridiculous. If Jesus had acted in the flesh, that would have been sin. And if he had sinned, he would then have been a sinner. And that would have blown his mission to die for sinners because sinners can't die for sinners. Jesus was the sinless, spotless Lamb of God who alone could die to take away the sin of the world. You say, but yes, but he got angry. Isn't anger a sin? Well, anger in and of itself is not a sin. There is such a thing as righteous anger. And Jesus here is acting out of righteous anger because his father's house, the temple, had been defiled and his father's name had been denigrated. So Jesus acted righteously by driving out the sin without sinning himself. Look, it's possible to get angry and not sin. Paul said that in Ephesians 4, verse 26. He said, be angry and what? Sin not, right? Be angry, but don't sin. Look, it's perfectly legitimate to drive by an abortion clinic and get angry. It is not legitimate. In fact, it's unrighteous and sinful to go into that abortion clinic and begin to hurt people that work there. God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. We pray for those who are engaged in that kind of stuff. We try to witness to them. We try to love them into the kingdom. But we don't take matters into our own hands and do violence to anybody. We serve the Prince of Peace. He'll come back and take care of all the unrighteous folks that refuse to receive him and so on. That's not for us to do. Vengeance is his. We should be angry, though, at injustice and crime and racism and violence against our fellow man. We should as well as rebellion, blasphemy, and immorality against the name of our holy God. However, much of the anger, let's be honest, okay, much of the anger that we see expressed by Christians today is not of the righteous variety, all right? It's usually anger that stems from a self-centered, kind of an uncontrolled anger, which stems from, you know, wounded pride or hurt feelings because somebody has done something to me that I thought was uh, unfair, unjustified, etc., let me say this to you about righteous indignation or righteous anger. It's never uh, the result of you sticking up for yourself. 
it's always the result of sticking up for the name of God or a person who is innocent, who is being uh, unjustly treated or so on. It's never righteous indignation or anger when we fight for ourselves. We're to die to self. But there are situations where our anger is justified. Just don't let it take you into sin. All right, well, we've looked at the temple in Jesus' day. But what about the temple of God in our day? You know, you think, wait a minute, there's no temple of God in our day. The temple is gone. The, the, it was destroyed in 70 A.D. Uh, the temple mount today has the, the dome of the spirits and the, and the dome of the rock, but there is no temple standing on the temple mount today. There is no temple. Well, you're right. There is no temple standing on the temple mount in Jerusalem today. But that doesn't mean there isn't a temple of God where God dwells. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians 2, starting in verse 19, we read, Paul said, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on a foundation of apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Now he's talking about believers now. And what Paul is saying is, look, there is a new temple that God dwells in. It's not made with literal stones, but it is made, as Peter said, with living stones. Every time a person receives Christ, they are fit into this temple. They become part of the dwelling place of God. God dwells in the hearts of his people. And when we come together, this is the temple of the living God. No, God doesn't dwell in, in temples made with hands. He dwells in the fleshly temples of our hearts. And as we come together, this church gathering, and every church gathering uh, where believers meet, becomes the, the new temple of God in the new covenant. We are where God dwells. Now, the temple in Jesus' day got corrupted. It was originally a place where God and man did meet. It was a place of worship and prayer and so on. But things had corrupted it. As I look at the church in America, let's just leave it in America, I see a temple that is corrupted. I see if the Lord Jesus Christ were alive today, he would go into many churches and he'd be kicking stuff over and driving some folks out because there is a lot of things going on in the church today that ought not to be. Things that Jesus Christ would never have allowed in his church in the first century. Things that are hindering, actually hindering, the work of God and what God designed the church, the new temple of God, to be in the new covenant. And just as Jesus cleansed the temple in his day, because it had been corrupted, and only after he cleansed it could it be used or become what God intended it to be, the same has to be true in our churches. Uh, the question is, well, what does God want the church to be today? I mean, what is the church to be? And what is it not to be? I mean, what is it to be that will allow it to be all that God has designed it to be? And what is it not to be that's hindering the things that God wants to do? Now, I'm just going to give you a few things that come out of our passage. I'm not going to develop this into an exhaustive study because we could go on for weeks. But let's just focus on our passage uh, today and then next week we'll finish. And this week I like to just look at what the church is not to be. It comes right out of the passage. And then next week we'll look at, well, what is the church to be? And it doesn't just mean the corporate church, because again, in the New Testament, the church corporately is called the temple of God, but then individually, 
we are each called the temple of God. So there is a personal application as well. But let's just keep it today to just look at what the church is not to be. And first of all, guys, the church is not to be a place where the worship of God is exploited into a money-making enterprise. Let me say it again. The church, the temple of God today, is not to be a place where the worship of God is exploited into a money-making enterprise. Turn to, to Mark chapter 11. And I want to read to you out of the parallel passage in Mark's gospel because it adds something that we don't see in Matthew's gospel that I want to key in on. In Mark 11, starting in verse 15, it says, So they came to Jerusalem. Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seat of those who sold doves. Verse 16, And he would not allow anyone to carry wares or commerce through the temple. In other words, Jesus forbid the commercialization of the worship of God. Now, listen to me. There's nothing wrong with commerce. There's nothing wrong with being a merchant. Not back then, not today. The problem was that they tried to combine commerce with the worship of God, and the result was the commercialization of the worship of God, and that's what Jesus forbid. Look, the commercialization of the church takes different forms. One form that is very popular in our day and has been for the last 30 years is running the church like a corporation that looks to market the church to people which it sees as potential customers. This creates a man-centered, consumer-driven model of the church that focuses more on church growth than it does personal holiness. In fact, years ago, I actually heard an elder uh, at one of these churches say this very thing, all right? I couldn't believe it. He said, quoting him, we give the customer what they want. We give the customer what they want. How about giving God's sheep what they need? Your job is not to give the customer what they want. Your job as a servant of God is to give the sheep of God what they need to grow in holiness and into a deeper relationship with him. It's not just about nickels and noses, as some have liked in the modern church. It's all about how many bodies can we fit into a church building? How much money can we bring in through them? Today seems to be all about how big we can grow our churches and what we have to do to get people in the church. In his book, <laughs> This Little Church Went to Market, author Gary Gilley talks about the mindset and the lengths that some churches will go to that have embraced this kind of thinking, the lengths that they will go to in bringing into their churches what they call unchurched Harry and Mary, okay? What they'll go, the lengths they'll go to, some of it's shocking, you study this a little bit, what they will actually do to bring people into the church. It's all about getting people into the church, all right? And Gilly, I'll just quote one paragraph. Gilly said, and I quote, the new paradigm church would have no problem agreeing that unchurched Harry's true need is salvation from sin, although they kind of define sin differently. Uh, but they do not believe that Harry will respond to such a gospel unless we dress it up with other enticing offers. Felt needs is the portal, they believe, through which Harry is reached in order that his true spiritual need is met. According to their marketing research, Harry is not interested in truth. Therefore, he does not react well to, thus says the Lord. 
And Harry is not interested in the future, including heaven. Therefore, reaching him through concern for his eternal destiny is futile, Gilly says. Well, another reviewer who was, uh, or, excuse me, another man who was reviewing Gilly's book, uh, he gave an, kind of an overall of what Gilly wrote in this book. I thought it was very insightful. He said, I quote, overall, Gilly argues that the new paradigm church has resorted to a market-driven approach to evangelism and church growth where the gospel is not seen as something sufficient to attract people. Instead, he argues, these market-driven churches try to find out what it would take to get people to come to church by finding out what they feel they need. They do this by taking surveys, asking people what they're interested in, asking why they don't come to church, etc. Then they try to implement what they learn into their church services. And you've heard this, of course. You know, how, how some churches have built their churches. What do they do? They've gone out into the community. And ask people, well, why, why don't you, do you go to church? No, I don't go to church. Well, why don't you go to church? Well, church is boring. Okay, well, what would make it less boring? Oh, I don't know. I mean, uh, I don't know. I mean, all that Bible reading and teaching. Well, what if we did something enter more entertaining things, little skits here and there, keep things moving, have a little interview over here, a skit over there, a little, yeah, that would be a little more interesting, sure. Well, what else don't you like? What, what else is keeping you away from church? I hate all that organ music, you know? Okay, well, well, we won't have any organ music then, all right? In fact, I heard one pastor say that why they have secular music in their church services is because we want to sing to the lost. And our service is all about getting people into the doors and singing to the lost, making them feel comfortable. But they survey the area, uh, find out why people are not coming to church, what it would take to get them to come to church, implement these things into their church services, too much talk about money, so we cut all that out have just boxes where they can, you know, put money in and so on. Well, the reviewer goes on to say, Gilly argues that this fundamentally amounts to setting forward a new gospel and that the true gospel inevitably falls by the wayside. He said you can't simultaneously tell someone what they want to hear, try to meet their felt needs, and then on the other hand tell them they are sinners, desperately in need of salvation, having offended a holy God, and are bound for judgment unless they repent. You can't do both of those at the same time. The, the writer says, I don't know about you, but I'm not naturally eager to hear that I've sinned. So if a church operates based on surveys of what people want to hear, it will almost in inevitably quit preaching about unpopular subjects like sin and instead, Gilly argues, preach about how Jesus can solve our problems and give us what we want most in life. Gilly argues that this approach to church growth probably results in church growth, all right, but church is growing by being flooded with people who are unconverted and who remain unconverted, end quote. And that's kind of the idea. I mean, if you water things down so much and make it so entertaining and so unchurchlike, I've actually been in some of these churches where if I didn't know I was in a church, I would never have guessed I would be able to tell that from being in the service. It was so secular. The building was so non-spiritual looking. It looked like you were in a corporate office somewhere, right? And the idea is that it's all designed to make uh, unchurched people come in feel comfortable. Well, you can grow a big church like that, but you know, people will come to church. I don't really know if they actually come into Christ. And the, and the defense is, well, these churches are growing. Certainly the Holy Spirit's there. Folks, even graveyards grow. That doesn't mean the Holy Spirit or life is there. I'm not saying that everybody's unsaved. 
I'm just saying when you fill a church with unbelievers who you don't really talk to them about their sin, you give them the impression that they're right with God, but really they are. You're not helping them. You're not helping them. You know, years ago, I read a, uh, a book somebody gave me when I first became a pastor. It's a great book. I think it's out of print now called Love, Acceptance, and Forgiveness. I think the author was Jerry Cook. And in that book, Jerry Cook presented what I thought was very insightful. As a young pastor, I just really got into that. It was just really insightful. He says, today, for the most part in the church, there are two models of the church that we see. There is one called the church as a field, and the other is the church as a force. He defined the church as a field model this way. He said, this is a group of people that believe that the church is the mission field where evangelism takes place. Therefore, they gear their services to bring unbelievers in because this is where the evangelism takes place. You folks, you're not equipped to do that kind of work. Leave it to the professionals. We've all gone to seminary. We have our degrees. Well, praise God. God bless you. Okay? What did the early church do with all the seminary degrees? I think they did pretty well, didn't they? Just preaching, sharing the gospel and the power of the Spirit. But that's the, the church is a field model. It's all about getting people in the church because this is where the evangelism takes place. Folks, that is not the biblical model. The biblical model is the church as a force. What does that mean? It means when you come to church, we teach you. That's my job, okay, in the power of the Spirit, to, to, to teach the Word of God, all the teachers and pastors and small group leaders in our church. That's our job. That's the gifting God's given us, to study the Word to pray about it, to then present God's truth to strengthen the believers in Christ that they can go out and be a force for Christ in the world. That's where the evangelism takes place, right? And if God brings unbelievers here and they get saved during a church service, praise God, we are totally open to that. But that's not our main focus. It's not reaching the lost on Sunday morning. It's, it's equipping the saints for the work of ministry, which takes place all week long. So... The church as a corporation is one where the church is being commercialized and marketed today. Uh, there's another very popular model that uh, uh, we're all familiar with. You can't turn on Christian TV or radio without these folks being on there. And that is the greedy approach that looks at the church as a commodity to be sold. A commodity, okay? First, a corporation looks at the church as a corporation. The second one is uh, run by greedy individuals that look at the church and Jesus in particular as a commodity. Turn to 2 Peter 2. I'm just going to pick it up in chapter 2, 2 Peter 2 with verse 1. I'm going to read you out of the New Living Translation. You can follow along in your version. Peter said, But there were also false prophets in Israel, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will cleverly teach destructive heresies and even deny the Master, the Lord Jesus, who bought them. In this way they will bring sudden destruction on themselves. Many will follow their evil teaching and shameful immorality, and because of these teachers the way of truth will be slandered. In their greed they will make up clever lies to get hold of your money. But God condemned them long ago, and their destruction will not be delayed. Their judgment is coming. Peter is telling us that just as there were false prophets and false teachers that infiltrated and infected God's people in the Old Testament, so they would be among God's people in the New Testament church. In fact, the early church had a name for these wolves in sheep's clothing. They actually called them Christ merchants. 
Christ merchants, those who profited off of Jesus by selling him like some kind of commodity for personal gain. Of course, he comes across like a man of God often, but you study his life a little more carefully, you see that there's a lot of problems. And one of the biggest problems is he is always making money the emphasis. And uh, that leads really to the next point, the final one we'll look at today. Again, this is not exhaustive, but it comes right out of this passage, these points. It leads to the next point, which is what the church is not to be. Point number two, the church today is not to be a place where leaders are greedy men that look at ministry as a way to get rich. I mean, the local church should be a place where people go to find God, go to worship God, not a place to have their hunger to know God exploited by crooked preachers who want to separate them from their money. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul referred to these kind of leaders in the church as men of corrupt minds who think that godliness or actually Christianity is a way to get wealthy. And you don't have to turn on Christian TV and watch it for very long to see these characters all over the place. They're on TV, they're on radio. It's always about money. How you can be wealthy and how is that by sending your money into our ministry? Because, you know, if you give, God will give you a hundred times back. So the only ones getting wealthy are the characters that are, you know, telling people, send your money to us and God will make you rich. I like what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17. Paul said, you see, we are not like the many hucksters, I love that, who preach for personal profit. We preach the word of God with sincerity and with Christ's authority, knowing that God is watching us. Wow. If more people in ministry, more pastors, conducted their ministries with the understanding that God was watching and they were going to have to give an account to him someday for what they did in his name, I'd have to believe that there'd be a lot fewer charlatans in the pulpit. Paul said, we are not like those hucksters. We teach the word of God in sincerity, knowing that God is watching us. And Peter said in 1 Peter 5, verse 1, he says, the elders who are among you, the church leaders, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. He said, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, and not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Character is everything. It's so sad today that so many people are willing to follow a guy who is not really a man of character. So why do they follow? Because he looks good, he talks well, he dresses sharp. It's all style over substance today. And so many people get roped into these ministries because they don't have any discernment. Why don't they have discernment? Because they really don't know what God has said in his word about what leaders are supposed to be. Look, the best of leaders in the church are, sim are simply people. None of us are perfect. But that doesn't mean that we flaunt our imperfections. It means that we as men of God and women of God, we continue to seek the Lord, uh, yield to the Holy Spirit so that the Holy Spirit can keep transforming us into the image of Christ. But a lot of these people, they're just corrupt. I was telling first service years ago, there was a guy in Texas. He was really 
an upcoming star in the whole Word of Faith movement. And I don't even know where he is. I haven't heard his name in years. But at this time, going back into the 80s, uh, he had a gigantic church in the, uh, uh, in the Metroplex area, I guess Dallas and some other towns right there, but uh, gigantic ministry, Word of Faith guy. And his whole thing was, look, send us in your prayer requests. So we, we have a team of people that will be praying for you. And while you're at it, could you send a generous offering for this ministry so that we can continue the work of God? And then ABC, <laughs> ABC had to expose them. And what they did was they had uh, a, a guy in the alley of the church where the dumpster was kind of filming things. And sure enough, every day they would come out with bags of mail, dumping them into the dumpster. And so after they would leave, the Channel 7 news crew would go over there and would pick through it, and they found envelopes with all the prayer requests still in there, and they had taken the checks out and just dumped the prayer requests. These are the kind of men who should not get anywhere near leadership in the church. You know, the Sadducees and chief priests were this, of this sort, greedy, corrupt men who turned the worship of God into a money-making venture, which is, again, why Jesus called the temple in his day a den of thieves. I think that the, the Sadducees and chief priests were cut of the same cloth as the corrupt prophets and priests in the Old Testament that God indicted in Ezekiel 34. Remember what Peter said? They were in among God's people in the Old Covenant. They're going to be among God's people in the New Covenant. These charlatans, these phonies, these rip-off artists. Turn to Ezekiel 34, and then we'll close. Listen to how God is indicting through the prophet Ezekiel, indicting the false prophets and priests in Ezekiel's day. And guys, I'm convinced God can say the same thing to many in the church in our day. But let's pick it up in Ezekiel 34, starting in verse 1. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord God to the shepherds, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. They're only in it for the bucks. I don't care about God's sheep. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? You eat the fat and clothe yourself with the wool. You slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the flock. What did Jesus say to Peter? Peter, feed my sheep. Verse 4, the weak you have not strengthened, nor have you healed those who were sick, nor bound up the broken, nor brought back what was driven away, nor sought what was lost, but with force and cruelty you have ruled over my sheep, God is saying. These guys didn't care about the sheep. They only cared about themselves. Ministry was all about making money. It wasn't about helping people. Verse 5, so they were scattered because there was no shepherd. No good shepherd is the idea. And they became food for all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. The beasts of the field is a reference to false teachers. If a man of God, if a pastor is not going to teach his people the truth of God, they become prey for every wind of doctrine out there. That's why it's so important that when Christians come to church, they are taught God's word. This is not a place where we typically are focusing on evangelizing the lost. We certainly hope that any lost people coming to our service, they, they hear the word of God taught, God will touch their heart and they get saved. But our services are geared for teaching the sheep what God has said. This will protect them from all the false doctrine out there, guys. There is so much false doctrine out there. I mean, it's everywhere. You got churches promoting Christian yoga, which is ridiculous. Uh, contemplative prayer, which is really just Christianized transcendental meditation. You've got all of these churches 
who are not only not teaching their people the whole counsel of God, they're actually parroting the false teachers of the world, trying to Christianize doctrines of demons, the very thing Paul said would happen in the church in the last days, that doctrines of demons would come into the church under the guise of biblical Christianity. And if a shepherd is not a good shepherd who is watching out, Paul told the Ephesian elders, he says, look, I've given you an example when I was with you of how to, to lead the flock by example, how to feed them faithfully in the word of God, but also how to watch out for the false teachers and warn the sheep when they try to infiltrate the church. You don't have churches warning people too much. It's, they're inviting the false teachers. They're inviting the wolves into the pulpit. Tell us about that new thing you're into. Oh, yeah, that breath prayers. Christian yoga? Oh, what a wonderful thing, really. Yoga means to yoke with Brahman, the Hindu god. You're leading your people to yoke with a Hindu deity? Oh, but we only do it for the Hatha yoga. It's only the physical aspects of yoga that we focus on. Google Hatha yoga. See if you can find some gurus, swamis, uh, some uh, Tibetan uh, monks or Buddhist monks uh, online. They'll tell you you cannot separate the physical from the spiritual in yoga because the physical exercises were designed to yoke a person with Brahman. And the more you practice these things, and Christians are, who are not being taught the truth, getting sucked into this stuff, are experiencing what's called the kundalini effect. Well, what is that? Hinduism teaches that there is this kundalini spirit, which is coiled like a serpent at the base of the spine. And through yoga, transcendental meditation, other things, you work that serpent, this kundalini spirit, up to the seven chakras of your body to the crown chakra, which means at that time you're fully yoked with Brahman, the Hindu god, which is nothing but a demon. Yeah, but I don't look at it like that. I'll just do it for the exercise. It doesn't work that way. You cannot take what Satan has developed to yoke people to, to demons and think you can Christianize them. It doesn't work that way. And so I was reading about one mother uh, she seemed like a very nice gal, Christian gal. And she said, you know, she, I, I'm, I got into Christian yoga. My church was having yoga classes, and I got into it, and I started then practicing uh, contemplative prayer. And she said, I'm, I'm normally a very kind and, and gentle person. I began to notice that I was going through violent mood swings. Everybody around me said, what's happened to you? I would fly off the handle into a rage at no, at, just at the drop of a hat. She said, I was having strange experiences, too. I'd see flashing lights at different times in the day. I'd, I would have weird sensations going up and down my spine, uh, weird tingling in my head. Folks, this is what's known as the kundalini effect. It's the after effects of dabbling with this stuff. She said, I, I was clueless about all of this. Until all this happened, I talked to some people that I considered to be uh, very uh, deeply spiritual people, and they told me, what are you doing messing with that stuff? You don't mess with contemplative prayer or with, uh, with Christian yoga. Christian yoga? How about Christian Satanism? How about Christian Hinduism? How about Christian communism? There are things you can't unite, okay? And she said, when I got their input, I went home, got on my knees, and I confessed my sins. I renounced it all, and I repented, and God graciously delivered me from it. And now I'm telling everybody, don't go there. Don't go there. But God said again, verse 6 in Ezekiel 34, My sheep, they became food for all the beasts of the field that were scattered. Verse five, verse 6, My sheep wandered through all the mountains 
on every high hill. Yes, my flock was scattered over the whole face of the earth, and no one was seeking or searching for them. Therefore, shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, says the Lord God, surely because my flock became a prey and my flock became food for every false teacher, is the idea, every beast, every false teacher and nut job out there promoting some goofy doctrine, because there was no shepherd, uh, nor did my sh shepherds search for my flock, but the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. Therefore, O shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my flock at their hand. I will cause them to cease feeding the sheep, and the shepherds shall feed themselves no more. And I will deliver my flock from their mouths, that they may no longer be food, my sheep, food for these false shepherds." End quote. That's why Jeremiah, who was prophesying around the same time as Ezekiel, here's what God said through Jeremiah in chapter 3, verse 15. God says, there is coming a time, because of all of these false teachers and shepherds, God says, there's coming a time when I'm going to give my people shepherds according to my heart, who will feed them with knowledge and understanding, who will faithfully feed them with knowledge of me and an understanding of my word, which will help them to grow strong in their relationship with me and not cause them to be prey for all the false teachers out there. So guys, that's what the church should not be, okay? A money-making venture filled with corrupt leaders who are only in it to make a buck. Next week, we'll look at what the church should be or needs to be that will allow it to be all that God has designed it to be. And again, it's going to come right out of our passage. I'm not going to make an exhaustive study of this, but there are some things here that I think are very fundamental, very key, Again, and not just the corporate church, but in our individual lives, because we are also individually the temple of God. And we will look at that next time. Father, we thank you that your word is truth. If we walk in its light, we'll never stumble in darkness. And Father, the world is filled with darkness, spiritual darkness. In fact, it's infiltrated your church, Lord, as you said would happen in the last days. And Lord, we, we realize that the apostate church is everywhere. We pray that you would give us grace to remain faithful to your word, like the Church of Philadelphia, that you will someday speak to and say, uh, you had a little strength, you weren't a big church, but you kept my word and did not deny my name. And Lord, that's all we can ask for, the grace to keep your word and not deny your name. We just pray that you give us the grace to do that. We just thank you, Father. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.